Hello, Fisheries Podcast listeners. This is the second time you get to hear me, Katie Heinley, on the podcast this month because Elise and I wanted to make sure you get to hear from both candidates for the second vice president of the American Fisheries Society on the same day. And just as a heads up, I did record some of this audio separately. So where there's changes in audio throughout the episode, that would be why. All right. Enjoy. Thank you for joining us. My name is Katie Heinley, and this is the Fisheries Podcast, a weekly podcast that shares the stories of the amazing people and projects that make up fisheries science. If you haven't already, follow the podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at fisheriespod. If you're the generous sort, you can be like Brian, Jody, Jerry, Garrett, Ben, Janet, and John, and support the podcast on Patreon with either a recurring or one-time donation. This helps us pay for various parts of the show. If that isn't your thing, you can also purchase Fisheries Pod shirts, hoodies, stickers, and face masks on our Teespring store. Today, I'm interviewing Dr. Marlis Douglas, one of the candidates for the second vice president of the American Fisheries Society. As a reminder, only active AFS members are allowed to vote in these elections, so be sure to renew or start your membership to participate in the election. Marlis received her bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees from the University of Zurich in Switzerland and worked at several universities across the U.S. before landing at the University of Arkansas as a professor of biodiversity conservation. Her lab focuses on understanding what processes shape biodiversity and works closely with state, federal, and tribal agencies to convert this research into actionable solutions. Thus, effective science communication and leadership skills are an integral part of her research program. Welcome to the podcast, Marlis. Thank you so much, Katie, for inviting me. I always like to start with people's background. So could you talk a bit about where your interest in fisheries first began? Yeah, sure. So as a kid, I just loved to be in the water, on the water, around the water, whatever I could be. And I was particularly fascinated with the organisms living in the water, especially the fish, because they could go places I couldn't go. I wanted to explore. And they were so effortless how they move through the water and how they could go into deep water. And so that was very, very intriguing to me. So I tried to find any ways I, I could be around water and study the fish, mostly in lakes, but sometimes in streams. You just don't see them that well in streams. So growing up, my dad was a teacher, so he had an extended break in the summer. And we didn't have a lot of money. And so we always went camping for five, six weeks. And it was absolutely fabulous because we would be almost living outside, being close to the water. So as soon as the sun was up, we could go out in the water and play all day, snorkel, swim, whatever. But the fish held really this fascination. And so when I then figured out, hey, I can actually do this professionally, I went to the university and studied first zoology. And then I got the opportunity to work with perch, European perch in the Swiss Alpine lakes. And the question is like typical, if so the study focused on early life history and this tremendous mortality. Consistent cohorts are essential because commercial fisheries in Switzerland, which is very small scale at lakes, depending on one of the main species as perch. So the question was, what contributes to this fluctuation in cohort size? So I started uh, studying the size of eggs and what impact this has on either development or size of the larvae. So they could make this transition in this earliest life history when they go through metamorphosis and start eating, feeding from endogenous to exogenous resources. How does egg quality egg size contribute to that? But being me, rather than bringing eggs into the lab, 
I actually went into the lake to work with the fish. And so we had little experiments where we uh, kind of had eggs and then the larvae would hatch. And so different size of eggs we could manipulate. And so that was the study. Now, of course, that required that I upgraded my skills from snorkeling. I learned scuba diving. It was a very challenging thing because perch spawn early in the spring and those fish lakes are cold. I mean, it was about six degrees Celsius. So we had to wear dry suits and full face masks and a lot of thermal underwear. And I had at least 100 pounds of lead around my waist. And people don't see me, but this is more than I actually weigh. So it was, it was very clumsy on land, but once you get into the water and you float and you're neutrally buoyant, it was just fabulous. As with any masters, you discover research is fascinating, but there is a lot of frustration. And so my frustration was the larvae died. They all died before the experiment was done. So, okay, I wanted to do better. I moved on to my PhD and I wanted to have adult fish which other people caught, so I didn't have to worry about getting my samples. And this opportunity came up working with whitefish, uh, Corygonus, in the lakes. And there was a similar question with regard to management. There was a big propagation program. Those lakes are eutroph or were eutroph. And so spawning uh, happened, but the eggs couldn't develop because there was too little oxygen in the lake. So they had this big propagation program where the commercial fishermen would catch the fish during spawning season that was, you know, close to other fisheries. But the question was, they had kind of small ones, which were spawning in deeper water, and then they had bigger ones, which were spawning in shallow water, and then they had some which spawned maybe in November and some in December and some in February. And so the question was kind of, well, are these different stocks or are they just uh, different life history stages of the same species? And I actually had some connections with fisheries chiefs. They kind of took us under their wing and, or maybe Finn, you should say. And um, they knew that we could get money from the federal government, which was very unusual at that time. You know, that was about 30 years ago to do this basically genetic stock assessment of these whitefish. The only catch was I had to learn genetics. And I hated genetics as, a, as an undergrad because I wanted to work with organisms. I wanted to have my fish in my hand and not have this clear liquid in a little DNA vial. And, you know, how does this relate to biology? But it was the right tool to address these questions. So therefore I did the hard thing. I learned genetics and then had an opportunity. I went to a whitefish conference and met Louis Bernachet again through connections with these fisheries chiefs and other colleagues. And Louis was at that point really at the forefront of whitefish research, genetic research, or Canadian research in Quebec, very well known. And so he invited us, hey, come to my lab. You can learn the techniques because nobody at our university did this. And when I say our, I had a colleague who worked actually on uh, Arctic char. So a similar question, they're different forms, not as many as whitefish. But this is how we got to go to Canada and learn in Louis' lab that research. Lo and behold, the story was actually quite fascinating. These genetic tools told us that it wasn't just small fish and large fish, like two distinct species, but each of these alpine lakes had a species flux. So each of these unique looking forms which were spawning were actually distinct species. And that was unknown. We know from the Great Lakes that they are ciscos and there is a species flux, but in Switzerland, this is basically replicated across each lake. And this was really fabulous. 
And another very interesting anecdote with this is which relates that, you know, these connections made it possible for me to have these opportunities. It took a little, you know, courage to say, okay, I, I can learn genetics. Okay, I can go to Canada. <laughs> and I would go and uh, get the fish. Sometimes I would go out with the fishermen. They would, of course, maybe sit in the back of the boat because I wouldn't mess up their gill nets. But then I would chat with them. And one time I was in a remote mountain village. And so they were cleaning up the fish and I was just asking them about, you know, what they know about the natural history. And so there was, the son had taken over the business, but his dad was helping out in this very busy time. And so we started talking and I said, you know, I heard that this large form uh, spawns at very shallow water. is actually has become extinct. This is what the fishery statistics say. And then the... Dad, you know, he was probably in his late 70s or so. I said, no, 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 that's not the case. The reason why they don't show up in the fishery statistics is that it's a very difficult gear to catch these fish. It takes multiple of the fishermen to work together to set this up. It was kind of like a gigantic fight net something. And because these fish are so hard to catch with this net, and we have easier fish to catch with gill nets, we don't do this anymore. The fish are still here, we just don't catch them. And there is a lot of talk about um, traditional ecological knowledge and indigenous ecological knowledge. And I think this is one of the examples uh, in Switzerland where these older fellow who had fished, you know, for probably 60 years before I was even born, knew things which we as scientists, we as academics didn't know about. So kind of this exchange of ideas of knowledge of information by just talking to these people was really really essential to give some context to some of the work i did a similar thing this older fellow pointed out that all the genetic data was beautiful you know kind of a species block within each lake but there was one population which was an outlier in that particular lake we had about six indigenous species and then one was most closely aligned with uh, another species at the opposite end of Switzerland. Never mind, Switzerland is really, really close, small. It's maybe a quarter of the size of Arkansas. Nevertheless, that fish could not have swam into that lake. So it didn't make sense why this particular data point was so different. And then this older fellow also said, well, you know, there was like 40 years ago, this fishery technician moved from that lake to this lake. And he just brought uh, this egg, uh, you know, they had these egg containers. They would carry like a metal backpack. They usually would carry milk from the, the mountains down, but they put eggs in those. And he just brought some of his eggs along from his lake. And what happened is they introduced those into this lake and they uh, persisted. So this is why this particular data point uh, had also a very, very interesting history. And once again, by talking to those people on the ground, you learn so much that you can make sense of scientific data. So that kind of was my master's and my PhD, and then was just accelerated from there. I met folks at the NATO conference, uh, to, which gave me an opportunity to do a postdoc at Arizona State and Texas A&M. And then I got involved in a lot of uh, Southwestern fishes. I did a, a lot of river trips in Grand Canyon, worked with these fish. I worked in Little Desert Springs with pupfish. Uh, some years, I was probably six months in the field. Again, we cooperated with a lot of state and federal agencies. 
because this is kind of how the VASP functions. You know, they work all together in this big cooperation on the native fishes. And so until I got my first uh, position at uh, Colorado State University. Long answer to your short question. No, that's perfect. And that actually covers a bit of my next question, which was about your career path. So that was great as well. I guess I'm kind of curious because I noticed on your CV that you have moved around quite a few different universities. Mm -hmm. So I was curious, what drove you to move to different systems and work from like the Western US to the Midwest to now the South? Yeah, I was just always very, very curious about anything almost. You know, I loved physics. I loved the history. I loved, but most I loved biology and especially fish. And I would say every seven years or so, I get restless. You build up your network, your research lab, your connections, your students, and so on. And you get into a stride and you do things. And then you think, okay, you know, you've got tenure. What's my next big goal? Where do I want to go? So what does the future hold? What can I be in the future? So what's the next big goal? And so sometimes doors open, opportunities come up. And initially you might think, "Ah, I'm not so sure. You know, I, I was always very, very happy where I was. But this opportunity would allow me to do something unique, maybe scale up the impact I can have. And so this is kind of what led me from Colorado State University, where I was in fishery and wildlife, to then go to the Illinois Natural History Survey, where I was working for the state, actually, and I was the curator of ichthyology, and I was a research uh, biologist, which was also a fabulous uh, opportunity. I would have liked to stay in the West, but working now all of a sudden in a very different system was very exciting too. And then University of Arkansas came knocking and said, hey, you know, there is this opportunity. And yet again, I said, okay, (laughs) let's, let's try this. We can do, and each time, you know, each change was really hard, but it provided so much new opportunities for the research, for our students, for partners to do bigger, better things to scale it up. So I would say my career really has been defined by change and what we can do better. Awesome. That's very cool. Um, So now that you're at the University of Arkansas, can you talk a bit about the research that your lab focuses on now? Yeah, we have continued to use these very powerful genetic tools and of course in the era of genomics that that has even more increased Uh, the power we have, the questions we can explore, which was not possible. Another thing is we have a lot of samples collected over the last 30 plus years. And some of these are rare species, are very endangered species, and they are very difficult to get to. But now with these new tools, we can explore new questions. For example, in Arkansas, we started a study where we looked at the community of fishes in the White River Basin. And so that was really driven by my PhD student, Zach Spinden, who is now a postdoc. And the question was, are there common features in the landscape which determine fish communities? You know, are there common delimitators which facilitate dispersal? We usually study these for single species, maybe a couple species to find differences or so, but really looking at the community level at this. And so we use these genomic tools and then some fancy statistics and so on. Zach knows this in and out, so he's really good at that. And we found out that actually fish communities, if you want to manage them on the landscape, it's about the HUC8, which is the right unit. So they are distinct patterns 
in this data set, which indicate that that's an appropriate management unit if we wish so. Now, of course, we did this for the White River Basin. We had about 75 sampling localities and 30 species and did genomic data for that. Right now, I think this is the biggest community genomic data set which exists. And we can now explore new questions. We developed some mathematical models to explore additional questions. And we want to use this now and see, can we translate this to other basins in the US or abroad? But I also would like to point out our lab uses whatever tool we need to answer the question. We also have a study with smallmouth bass in the state of Arkansas. And there we combine geometric morphometrics with population genomics to find out distinct lineages, uh, where are pure populations, where are populations which are introgressed by stalking, and then also tying this to a specific phenotype. And geometric morphometrics is similar to facial recognition software where the long-term goal, the hope is that we actually could develop like an app where an angler could in the field take a picture of a fish and then it would link this picture to our database and do some fancy AI, you know, <laughs> modeling, whatever, a machine learning and then say, well, 90% probability did I have a, a pure neutral smallmouth bass. And so that, in a way, again, giving these tools back to the community who is actually using these resources for recreation, sometimes for food source and so on. That's kind of what our research is right now. That sounds so cool. <laughs> <laughs> hey, the sky's the limit. If there, if there was enough money, I'm looking forward to that question. Yeah. <laughs> I also noticed from your website that you do quite a bit of international work as well. So I was kind of yeah. curious how those collaborations and those projects came about. This international collaboration came out through connections with David Philip and Julie Klausen, which are very active in AFS. And of course, they have the Fisheries Conservation Foundation. They started this radio tracking in Bhutan with Golden Masir. And Dave and Julie have been friends for a long time from our days working together at the Illinois Natural History Survey. And they said, you know, radio tracking is telling us what individual fish do. They move from the lowland up the river and they come back. But what you guys do, the population genetic, really would give us an additional perspective. Do these fish go up and actually spawn there? Yeah, we, we assume. But, you know, as... As biologists, never assume unless you have some data. Yes, what I predicted actually is consistent with the data. So we went over there and then yet again, you know, exploratory mind, think big, go forward. Yes, golden masseer is, is great to study, but there are all these other fish in the system. And they had a fabulous crew of Bhutanese uh, fisheries biologists. And... Bhutan is one of the least developed countries, so they didn't have access to a lot of fisheries uh, gear and so on. But they had done a survey of half of their country, all the rivers in the country, a fish a species diversity survey, just with very minimal equipment. And it was just inspiring, you know, the entrepreneurial spirit of these people. So we started working with them and realized, hey, with our knowledge, we can help them do this work better. We can help train them, especially for safety. We can provide them with very simple means, uh, like dishwashing gloves, so they don't get sapped when they electroshock. You know, little things like this, we can train them Then taking notes is really essential. So that started this collaboration. Two of those students uh, actually were our master's students in completed master's at the University of Arkansas, but now back to Bhutan. 
One is leading uh, the leading fisheries biologist at the National Biodiversity Center. And the, uh, the young lady is working for the Bhutan Ecological Society and both are doing very, very well. And we continue to collaborate with them. So we really want to help them build the capacity in their lab, provide what we have with regard to expertise and knowledge to help them manage the resource better. What decisions they ultimately make with that, with you know hydropower development versus biodiversity conservation, that's up to that country. But we want to provide the young scientists there who are so enthusiastic with at least the knowledge, the skills and the tools so they can generate scientific data to inform their policymaker and decision makers. That's really awesome. And it's especially cool hearing that you're able to like train Bhutanese people to do the work for themselves rather than just be like, oh, we're going to keep doing this for you the whole time. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah, you know, you should see these, these Bhutanese, they are like incredible, like mountain goats. You know, they hop on these little flip-flops from rock to rock. And yeah, maybe at, at one point I was more nimble, but I'm no more. And so, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, you know, as you get advanced in your career, the question which we will ask more and more frequently is, can we do this? And the royal we means basically have you all the capacity to mm-hmm. go after these fish here, use that gear, you know, record those data, go to these places. So that's really, really cool in a way. Yeah. I also wanted to talk about your science communication work that's also mm-hmm. involved co-authoring the fifth series of the Narrative Gym, in Uh particular for science. So can you talk about why that work is important to you and how that book came about? Yes. Conservation addresses very complex issues. So often it draws expertise from different disciplines, systematics, molecular genetics, taxonomy, ecology, and so on and on. So that alone is very complex. And when we do our research, we want to translate it to people, the state biologists, the federal, uh, you know, policymakers and so on. And what I realized as scientists, we are not good at communicating. We focus on detail. Most people are bored by detail, you know, just give me a simple answer. And so at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, all of a sudden these opportunities came up that a lot of people who had taught in-person workshops where you had to travel, all of a sudden offered these things online, including Randy Olson and his ABT training, his uh, narrative training. And the ABT stands for and, but, therefore. And so I took that class, I think Julie Clausen pointed it out to me, and I thought, this is great. You know, that's a framework I can use. What it does, basically, what Randy emphasized, what I learned from him is keep it simple. First, they always say, reach your audience. So how do you do this? How do you talk to your audience? Well, you make this relevant by starting with an agreement where the end stands for end agreement. For example, in Arkansas, We have smallmouth bass, and a lot of people really like to go out and fish for smallmouth bass and maybe take their children, their grandchildren to go to give them this experience. And so you you agree with them. Hey, that's what unites us. And then you said, but, you know, climate change is changing these streams. And if you don't manage for this now, there may not be a lot of smallmouth bass around in the future for your children to take their children or grandchildren to fish. And so then they understand, yeah, we are on the same line. We all care about smallmouth bass and this is at stake. So if the environment changes, 
then there might not be these opportunities for my children. And I care about this. So then they kind of say, okay, now I see how climate change potentially relates to my life, you know, how, what an impact it may have. And so then you do with the, the therefore, so then you provide a solution and the best solution they say, hey, we can do this and this is how you can help us. So this is what you can do. And so in a way, having this very simple framework to phrase your messages is very, very effective, connecting to whatever audience you want. Communication is about approximation, whereas science is about accuracy. Scientists, when they exchange information, they want all the little nitty gritty details and agonize about them and argue about them, but you lose people. And never start first with the problems that climate change is, is, is bad for, you know, the world and we have to do something about this. People don't want first problems. They want first, okay, yeah, this person is a partner in this. And so anyway, I took that class, started applying it, tried to teach my students. When the class was available again, I took it again and exchanged a lot of emails with Randy because I thought a lot about this and say, hey, how about this? And so eventually he invited me to join his team to help teach the ABT online course. And at some point I said, hey, we really should provide more tools for grad students, for other scientists. They had, he had written the, narrative, the first narrative chain book. And then we have a person with a business background who teaches us how to pitch our proposals as sales pitch. Uh, business people are very good at messaging, so we can learn a lot from them. And so that person said, hey, my people won't buy that book, that narrative gym book, if there is not business on the title. That led to the narrative gym for business. And then uh, there was the law person said, hey, narrative gym for law, politics. And so then the logic, hey, narrative gym for science, but let's make this one kind of more actionable for grad students and postdocs, because those are the ones who are really keen on learning how to effectively communicate with uh, not just other scientists, but stakeholders with the public and so on. They really need these tools for elevator speeches, proposals, uh, presentations, writing dissertations, but also just any type of communication. So this has led to that book. Awesome. All right. I also wanted to get into our questions that are more specific to the second mm -hmm. vice president that you are in the election for. So mm -hmm. I was curious, when did you first get involved with AFS and what role has AFS played in your career? I try to remember, and I think the very first time I really was involved was when I joined Colorado State University and they had a very active student chapter. And so I was just part of that. That was fabulous. And then, of course, you attend the state chapter. It was the Colorado-Wyoming state chapter meeting because there you meet all the biologists working in the state, working on local issues. We had a lot of projects which involved these fishes. So that was just a fabulous community. In When we were at Arizona State, we worked with a lot of state and federal agencies, but there was no student chapter. So that was a really important entry point, not just for students, but also for people like myself, a faculty who joins, uh, you know, in fishery and wildlife, gets engaged. And a lot of these people from that uh, era have gone on and done fabulous things, you know, like Freshwater Illustrated. Those students were grad students at Colorado State during that time. And so we started attending the annual meeting. I was also heavily involved in the American Society of Ichthyologists and Herpetologists and have been for, I think, about 10 years now 
the liaison between these two societies. And so I just started to be more and more engaged. I organized an animal symposium for uh, kind of jointly organized by these two societies, ASIH and AFS. I got really involved in the genetic section until they asked me if I would stand election for their president. That then got me more into the governing board, the, where I also was, again, through connections. Somebody said, hey, you should also join the management committee, you know, kind of somebody with your mind. And then we actually, out of this interaction, at that point, Doug Austin kind of asked for volunteers to work on planning the future of AFS. He didn't say it exactly this, but basically scientific societies have functioned very well for many years, including AFS for over 150 years, but the world is changing and societies have to adapt to that. So how do we remain relevant in the future in this changing world? The question basically is, what do our members want? What services do they need to be effective in their job? What kind of communications can we provide? What type of connections do they seek? How can the society stay relevant? And I thought that was a fabulous idea. And there are a lot of committees who work on similar questions within AFS. There is currently program reviews going on, all these different programs like the Hutton program, books and publications, what direction should they take in the future? What have we done for them the last five years or more? And what should we do for the next? But Joe Conroy from Ohio DNR also volunteered to serve on that committee. And we decided, hey, let's look at the big picture. Let's not look at next five years. Let's think big. Where does AFS want to be 20, 30 years from now? Basically moonshots. Awesome. So related to that, what would you say your vision is for the future of AFS? Yes, my vision is basically that AFS leverages its superpower. And what I consider the superpower is the diversity of professions we have, of career trajectories, career stages. We have state biologists, we have academics, we have the private sector, we have nonprofits. We have consulting companies and we have engineers and geneticists and information technology and educators. So we have an amazing set of people who have all this experience, these skills, this knowledge. But sometimes the problem is that we don't work closely enough together. And there is where this leadership and communication come in by getting out of our silos. And being able to communicate with each other, we can, in a way, multiply our combined expertise, our combined knowledge, and achieve so much bigger things. So how do we do this? This is which goes back what I said before about these moonshot goals, these really big goals. Let's develop a big picture vision what AFS wants to do. And this will come from the members. And this is why right now we are organizing these future casting workshops to engage members to, in a way, first introduce them to this process of thinking big and then having this visioning exercise, but then making it actionable by identifying what peoples are needed to build that future. What technologies do we need to build that future? What expertise will we know? Information technology will be very relevant. Training, this is what members tell us. Training webinars, micro-certification might be something. You know, diversify the certification offerings we have. A lot of these aspects, that's what members want. That's what they are willing actually to do pay membership for. 
so the principle is build it and they will come. There is a lot of concern about membership, loss of membership, and that a lot of members are not quite clear, well, why should I renew my annual membership to AFS? If you provide these, these kind of services they want, then they see that the value in why they should spend this membership. So in a way we engage right now the members and say, okay, tell us what you want in a big picture and then make it actionable. Okay, now let's, let's scale it down. Let's see what we can, what it takes to be halfway there, what it takes to be partway there and so on. And this is where the strategic plan fits in. A strategic plan basically plots out some actions for the next five years. Is very actionable in this time frame, but it's not the moonshot type of big picture goals. If you have these goals, I always compare it in your early morning commute, assuming you're not working remotely, you know exactly you're at home, you want to get to work and what way you take. Now there is an accident and so you can't go your regular way. So you have to adapt. You have to find a detour, but because you know where you want to end up, you can do this. You can be flexible. You can adjust, you can adapt. And this is how these goals work. That if we know where we want to end up, we can implement the mission AFS has as a clear mission, but it doesn't have a very, very clear defined long-term big moonshot type of vision. And this will also help align programs within units, you know, all the great work, the different committees, the different section chapters and so on. If they all have kind of these big goals in mind, they can make adjustments in their annual plans, in their five-year plans and so on to adaptively navigate towards this. And this is also what is referred to as decentralized command. You empower them to make independent decisions, but these decisions are aligned with everybody else's decisions. So you work together towards the same goal. And so that's, I think, where we really can use the superpower that we talk to engineers, that we talk to information technology. I know they have a new name and I can't just remember it, but you know, all these experts we have, this is unique basically in fishery society, aquatic society. So AFS really has, has a great opportunity to become something so much bigger. And when we outline this framework for people, I think everybody is energized. They can be part of this process, but especially the young people, you know, who sometimes question what, what is AFS for me? Well, the question is not what is AFS for you now. It's where do you want it to be? Join us, help us build this. And so this is also why it's very important to be a consistent member. Awesome. I feel like that covered my question about emphasizing the importance of AFS membership. So I'm going to skip that. And then mm -hmm. you've sort of touched on this, but I just want to explicitly ask is my last question in this section. Why are you specifically running for this second vice president of AFS position? It kind of has to do with that I evaluate frequently. How can I best contribute at this stage of my career to help others succeed? And I realized Working closer with different committees, different people, governing board, uh, you know, the AFS officers, that I can contribute, that I have unique perspectives because of my different background than a lot of people in, in AFS, my inquisitive mind, my way of going outside to find solutions, like from business. For example, I get leadership training from former Navy SEALs. I took a course from a former Top Gun fighter pilot and the instructor, because they are the best at building highly functional teams. 
So I thought I can contribute to AFS. And of course, I can do this within committees and other functions. And then I was approached and said, hey, would you be considering running for second vice president? And my first reaction was, no, why me? You know, and then you, you reflect and think, okay, this is another one of these opportunities where you say, okay, I can help. I can make this big, scary step, take on this big responsibility and do the best I can do to help AFS succeed. I care much about all the members, you know, the state biologists, the students, the, the more senior people, the, the academics. I think I can help. So having this opportunity to contribute in a new way, in a different way, but relying on what I think I'm good at, what I can do best at this stage of my career is a really fabulous opportunity. And so I said, okay, <laughs> I'm willing to give it a try. Of course, it's totally up to the membership to decide what they want, what they need, what they think AFS should have. And so this is just what I can offer. Awesome. All right, Marlis, we have come to the end of what we call the tough part of the interview and are down to our final five questions, which is a group of questions we ask each of the guests that come on the show. The first one is, what is your favorite fish? And that's actually the most difficult question <laughs> because I love all fish and I have my few specials, but I thought about this for the purpose of the podcast and I would say cutthroat trout because they embody so much what I have done as a scientist, what I care about as a biologist and what I try to do to provide information for those people who manage our resource. You know, they have this enormous diversity, this adaptive evolution in these headwater streams. There are a lot of questions related to how do we manage this diversity, the stocking histories, how we, do we deal with this? And then of course too, the, the indigenous fishing, which is more Pacific salmon, but also this is, has all these layers and just from a biological entity, they're just absolutely fascinating species, how they can adapt to these environments and how we now, in a way, struggle to retain that biodiversity. Awesome. All right. What's your favorite memory from your career so far? You know, being a biologist, working in a the field, there's so many good ones. And I think I would say one was seeing a paddlefish, a live paddlefish for the first time in my life. Growing up in Europe, we don't have paddlefish. I was in Southern Illinois with a group of students and we were sailing at an outlet of a lake and there were silver carp and a lot of, you know, other native fish. And then my grad student came up, my TA, and he was a very quiet, measured person. And he just said, I think we have a paddlefish. And I, I couldn't believe it. I said, a paddlefish, a paddlefish. I can't believe you have a live paddlefish. I was so excited to see this, this marvelous creature for the first time. And as I started getting more and more excited, the students got more and more excited. And they said, we got a paddlefish, we got a paddlefish. And it was a small one, maybe, you know, less than a, than a meter total. But realizing this enthusiasm I have, this excitement spread across the students. And even though... They may, I might not have quite realized how unique of a fish this is, how special, yeah, it looks a little weird and, and so on, but <laughs> going so long back in evolutionary history and that it's only found in this part of the world, just my enthusiasm spreading them across the student, that's just one of my favorite memories. That's awesome. All right. What's your dream job and their location? And I would say 
wherever I am at this point, wherever I go next, I have been able to be happy at any place I was ever because there are so many opportunities. And I think you have to be willing to let go of certain things. Don't expect the same here in Arkansas as I had in the Southwestern desert. But there are opportunities. Just endorse them, adapt, change, embrace the challenges, and move forward. And so I think I have the, the best job right now I ever could think of. Not that I don't have certain goals, but <laughs> <laughs> I'm happy. Good. If money was not an issue, what is one project you would like to work on? I think the best thing you can do with money is invest in others. Help them succeed. And there are two levels I would like to do this. One is building a gateway program for veterans to be informed, get exposed to opportunities in, and hopefully join careers in natural resource conservation, and even broader, nature research and STEM. And if the money is unlimited, as you say, then I would like similar to build a program to build capacity in countries across the world, like our Bhutanese colleagues, Southeast Asia, there are so many people who are hungry for information, for training. And if and I see in both, I see really AFS can play an important role. Building capacity, investing in the future, that would be the best. Awesome. And our last question is if there's one point or principle that you could have programmed into everyone's head, what would it be? Respect. And respect is that we can disagree about issues. We can accept each other's uh, opinions, but I think if we respect each other, we will be open-minded to learn from each other, no matter of which career stage you are, you know, which lifestyle you choose, what your background is, what your ultimate goal is. I think respect. And that, when we feel that we respect each other, we can trust each other, that we are indeed on the same team, it will help us to communicate, to listen to each other, and to really build this future. So I think respect would be the most important thing I want to embed in people's mind. Awesome. Thank you again to Marlis for coming on the podcast today. If you want to find out more information about her lab or get a hold of her, you can find her at her website, marlisrdouglas.org. And I will include a link to that in the show notes. Again, just a reminder that if you would like to vote in the election for second vice president of the American Fisheries Society, you must be an active member, so be sure to renew or start your membership today. I hope that you all enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to get a hold of me or the podcast, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at fisheriespod, or send an email to feedback at thefisheriespodcast.com. You can download past, present, and future episodes on your favorite listening app or stream it from Spotify or thefisheriespodcast.com. And don't forget you can help support the podcast with a monthly contribution through Patreon or by rocking some awesome Fisheries Podcast shirts, hoodies, and stickers available on Teespring. I'm Katie Heinley. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Fisheries Podcast. And remember, have respect for others.